From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll learn how to avoid deer while you're driving to Thanksgiving dinner and what to do if you hit one. Then we'll tell you what people are learning in the Master Naturalist program offered by the UW system. Master Naturalist programs are sort of a return to land. It's the restoration of our relationship that for many Native cultures has, has always been. Plus, we'll learn about a new food memoir that shares tales from growing up on the Menominee Indian Reservation. He really explains how the times in the mainstream society affected him personally and the reservation in general. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. The next couple of days will be some of the busiest travel days in Wisconsin and throughout the U.S. There are many hidden dangers on the road, but one of the most persistent here in Wisconsin are deer. This time of year can be especially bad for a variety of reasons, as our next guest knows all too well. Jeff Pritzel is the Wisconsin DNR's State Deer Program Specialist, and he joins me now to talk about why we see so many deer on the roads this time of year, and what to do when you encounter one. Jeff, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. You bet. So this time of year can be especially dangerous uh, for deer and drivers on Wisconsin roads. What brings deer into contact with drivers at this time of year? The increased incidence that usually starts the last week of October and carries through the first half of November is really surrounding the, the deer breeding season. And just the fact that deer population is, is quite high right now, especially in southeast Wisconsin. And so deer are on the move more often, uh, more hours of the day. It's not as constricted to the dawn and dusk typical time, although dawn and dusk still, you know, is the most elevated and, and riskiest time. There's just more deer crossing more roads this time of the year because they're pursuing each other or trying to get away from each other because of breeding activity. Sure. I think anyone with a cat or a dog can tell you this time of year can be difficult for animals who uh, have to deal with some major changes in both human behavior and, uh, I guess, how we interact with them. How do deer handle that? Because, of course, we're ending up on the roads at a time uh, that we normally wouldn't be in the same way. Because of we move away from daylight savings time at this period as well. So our highest afternoon or evening commute volume now really overlaps with the highest amount of deer activity. So it just, again, increases that chance of those interactions happening on, on the roadway. But now what we're moving into is uh, the, the annual firearm deer hunting season, which, of course, the main pursuit there is deer hunters in Wisconsin, which there are well over a half a million of them statewide, you know, out in pursuit of getting a deer and putting it in the freezer and uh, for food and, and all the things that go along with the hunting experience. But one of the effects of that is we're going to remove somewhere in the neighborhood of 200,000 deer from the state in, in about a week's time. So there's a side benefit to that in that 
It's reducing the deer population density, and that changes deer behavior as well. They, they'll quickly switch from being very active, moving around a lot, to seeking sanctuary and being more secluded and trying to avoid you know, the hunting pressure. And so we'll see that change in deer car accident rates relatively quickly. Uh, so pretty quickly here, we're going to see at least fewer deer in general in the state, maybe uh, maybe more deer on our table, as it were, but uh, <laughs> fewer who are going to be in the roads. And one of the things that, that even non-hunters in Wisconsin, which most are, can or should appreciate about you know the deer hunting season is that there is a win-win for everyone in Wisconsin in as much as it helps manage the deer population, not only in balance ecologically with the landscape, but in balance with human health and safety considerations and and car accidents and the like. And one of the challenges in Southeast Wisconsin is there simply is a lot of incidental sanctuary where deer can avoid and, and not be exposed to hunting harvest. And so to landowners that may not hunt themselves, uh, but recognize that there could be hunting opportunity on their property, they can be part of the solution in helping the community as a whole by encouraging or inviting people to come and, and harvest a few deer on their property in the effort of seeking that balance. Well, that gets to one of the questions uh, I had about deer. When you're on a backcountry road, when you're in uh, an area that is more rural, I think we have a heightened expectation of there being deer. But as you say, uh, there are deer all over the state and in areas like southeastern Wisconsin where we have these larger tracks that there isn't any hunting, you can also find deer. What are some of the unexpected places where we do find deer and where they cause collisions? Probably the answer there is there really aren't any unexpected places these days because there's been episodes of deer, uh, especially during the breeding season. They're they're exploring. They're maybe moving into areas that they normally wouldn't be. And so everything from shopping mall parking lots to you know relatively busy thoroughfares. And sometimes the the design of the layout of the land can incidentally act as a funnel that causes deer to to move along uh, maybe it's a concrete embankment or something like that and get themselves in a in a really precarious situation and and they've simply have adapted to and gotten very comfortable living in and amongst us in residential areas taking advantage of green space and and most major metropolitan areas you know are are dealing with this issue and we have to expect that deer are are occurring in and amongst the places we frequent so as we look at uh, just avoiding a crash with a deer, of course, there are going to be situations in which you really cannot avoid this crash. But what are your tips for uh, navigating deer on roads? I think that the main tip is it's just general driving safety tips, but it's accentuated as it relates to the risk and timing of places where you may encounter deer and it's to be keeping your head up and, and always having an eye to the shoulder of the road. Because yeah, sometimes the deer can come out across the road at a high rate of speed where there just isn't that time to react. And sometimes people will share that the deer, they didn't hit it with the front of their car, but the deer actually ran into the side of their car. And, and that's simply a fact that the deer's hooves are not well 
designed to get good grip and traction on asphalt or concrete. And so sometimes they're committed, they can't stop either. And, and so even though they may not get in front of the vehicle, they may run into the side of the vehicle. But the main thing to remember is when you do see a deer, try to slow down as quickly as possible without losing control of the vehicle, so keeping the tires in contact with the road. And the main advice is not to try to swerve to miss the deer because that actually increases the risk of a worse accident happening because you lose control of the vehicle. I had an experience actually just the other day. I was coming off of a ramp on I-43 following a car and the car in front of me all of a sudden really hit the brakes hard, which surprised me. And I was thankfully in a position where I was able to brake without rear-ending that vehicle just to see a large buck run right across the front of their car. And so they were fortunately in a situation where they, they did it just right and nobody had the inconvenience of an accident. But sometimes, obviously, it happens between 10 and 20,000 times in the state over the course of the year. It's going to happen. So we want drivers to, to be in a good situation, you know, in those situations or experiences just recognizing if you're going to hit the deer, the main goal is to keep control of the direction of the vehicle. Sure. Now, say an accident happens, somebody hits a deer, what should they do? So the first step would be to call the sheriff's department. Um, even if it's a minor accident that doesn't require a report because of you know the potential cost of damage, just being able to track the number of accident reports, you know, helps us in the bigger picture see if there's trends and, and changes. And then, of course, if the deer, you know, is dead and in the roadway, you know, that's a safety hazard that needs to be dealt with. And so making the sheriff's department aware of it so they can respond or transfer that off to whatever municipality is responsible for the area to deal with it. If and maybe the car is disabled, maybe it's not, but to get assistance to keep the scene safe, you know, for other folks. Then the next step is, especially during cooler weather, like we're in now, it's not uncommon for people to want to utilize that deer, you know, since it's dead and maybe they want to recoup some of their damages. I thought, well, at least I can gain some meat in the freezer. It is legal to claim the deer for utilization, but it does require documentation of that to take the deer into possession. And the Department of Natural Resources has a 1-800 phone number. Uh, that you know, people can call and say, you know, there's a dead deer at this location, and and I'm going to claim it. The driver gets first dibs if they want to use the deer, but in many cases they don't, or somebody else at the scene then may want to take the deer, and in some cases that doesn't happen, and and the next passerby may say and see, oh, that's a freshly killed deer, looks like it's not too badly damaged. Uh, you know, I'd like to make use of it, and they too can then call. And in doing so, we document that there's legal possession of the animal. But again, it's important that the sheriff's department knows so they can coordinate whether or not there's a need to notify the contractor that, that picks up roadkills that aren't utilized. And so it's just good to keep that line of communication open. All right. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect, sharing your work. And uh, hopefully for people listening, uh, they won't have to use this information, but they have it if they do. Right. We wish everybody safe travels and a safe hunting season. Jeff Pritzel is the Wisconsin DNR's State Deer Program Specialist. 
for more than a decade, the University of Wisconsin Extension has offered a Master Naturalist program. It includes training and hands-on experiences, from building and installing bat houses to surveying endangered plants and animals. This year, a group of 20 Master Naturalists in the making were treated to something new. The Natural Resources Department of the Ho-Chunk Nation led the course. One day a month over a six-month period, the group met at sites significant to the nation, from La Crosse to Madison, and places in between. WUWM Susan Benz has more. First, you'll hear from a few people participating in the program. Every single person that I've talked to has been so beautiful, like just open-minded and just like, it's so refreshing. Um, And just really accepting and like, I don't feel like I have to put up something, you know what I mean? Like I feel very like comfortable and that's like, that's, that's a lot. Getting to learn parts of nature that I didn't know about from the from Ho-Chunk and traditional ecological knowledge. So today, for example, we were talking about different uses of some of some various plants. We're talking about language and the language the Ho-Chunk people related to various you know, plants and beings in our natural world. And so I think it's bringing this perspective that, you know, in a lot of ways, It's not something I was taught in college or in my career. And so I think this has been a really wonderful experience. Master Naturalist programs are sort of a return to land. Um, It's the restoration of a relationship that for many cultures, for many native cultures has, has always been. And when we try to separate ourselves from land, or try to separate ourselves from the natural his- histories, things are going to get lost in the cracks. And so I think it's sort of a way to honor that relationship and um, kind of bring balance and restoration. I'm feeling sad that it's coming to an end, <laughs> but uh, enriched from the experience. You just heard from Jessica Schmidt of Milwaukee, Trisha Gorby of Madison, and Olivia Moran Rodriguez. She lives in La Crosse. They are three of the people who shared the Wisconsin Master Naturalist training hosted by the Ho-Chunk Nation Department of Natural Resources. The course filled up within minutes of being posted by UW Extension. The group's final day was spent in the Black River Falls area. It's not only where the Ho-Chunk Nation government is located, the region is sacred to its people. We walked one of those areas. Today it's a county park called Wazi Lake Recreation Area. Before that, it was an open pit mine. But generation upon generation earlier, it was stewarded by the Ho-Chunk people. I talked with another course participant on that walk. Diane Rave is a member of the Ho-Chunk Nation. She shares a bit about her family history, the significance of the site we hiked, her own work with the Ho-Chunk Nation, and why she participated in the Master Naturalist Program. First of all, Rave grew up here. Um, Mom's from Viroqua. She's non-native, but my dad, you know, had lived here all his life. Um, My grandmother moved around a little bit from Nebraska here, but she was born in 1910, so there was a lot of stuff going on with (laughs) the communities back then. My mom was one of, um, well, the first uh, non-native person to be married in our church you know here and out at the at the mission so so yeah in the the early 60s I mean that was Mm -hmm. you know that was wasn't as common as it is now (laughs) so 
So the mine here was, um, I believe, started in that early 60s. It got moving where there was probably the, the height of the employment and the amount of um, iron ore that was taken out was probably late 60s, early 70s. And then I think they start seeing a decline. Found a few more deposits. Some of the other areas where there's burial mounds that I know that they've, you know, we've been told that they were aware of but it probably interfered with what they were doing here, mining. Just down the road, there's an unmarked uh, burial ground that I know that our, um, like the Heritage Preservation and, you know, a number of elders you know, keep an eye on. Um, and then our Black Deer Homestead isn't too far away from here. So I'm guessing only that the mine itself would have been controversial. It was new. It was a new issue that they had to deal with at the time. You know, some people, I mean, I knew, you know, my parents had friends, you know, that were native that worked at the mine. Um, you know, I think we know now some of the things that are more devastating to the land than they probably did, you know, back in mm, the sure. early 60s. Um, I think Wisconsin does a better um, I think that when they leave mines and they have to restore them back to, to something, uh, right. we do a better, uh, we're more responsible than other states. I mean, mm -hmm. we traveled down like in Texas and I, that was hard. It was hard to just see miles and miles and miles of mining and they just leave it there, you know, abandoned cars. You know, I'm glad that that wasn't what happened here. My biggest concern is that in this area and in a couple of the other bigger fields, um, you see a lot of mahinch, which is milkweed, and a lot of people use milkweed um, to, for cooking. It's still contaminated land. Um, I did a, a project on this when I was um, in one of my classes. We had to pick something, and I wanted to pick something close to where I lived, and I picked the the mine when they were first changing this over and so you know reading how the test on this land and it'll be several decades before the land would be would be able to sustain food that would be healthy to eat and that's what concerns me is that you know people that don't know that I think that should be posted here especially when it's right in an Indian community a beautiful area. We use this for a lot of our events. Our health department sponsors a lot of like we're in a hiker fitness program right now where we have to have 10 places that we hike in Jackson County. We've done Ragnar events where we've coordinated during COVID because you know we couldn't, people weren't traveling so we found ways to do that here. Um, there's a duathlon, an annual duathlon that the Jackson and Action and Ho-Chunk Nation sponsor. Um, a lot of people come and use that lake uh, for training, for Ironman um, trainings, because the distance is from across is what they're interested in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, a lot of biking, you could bike and run and swim, so it's a perfect area to train in. I'm glad we have it, but it's got a lot of history. <laughs>
you're an adult educator. I work for the tribe's um, education department. I'm the financial aid administrator. So I've done that for 30 plus years. Just helped students go to college. Then what brought you to this moment and taking this course? Um, very interested in what our DNR, um, you know, has, was doing. I went to a training up in um, an Act 31 training a couple years ago um, that was sponsored or co-sponsored with the state um, with the DPI and Potawatomi and a couple of the, the Chippewa tribes. And I was fascinated on what some of their DNR programs are doing. And our DNR program being so new, um, and then talking with, uh, with Tina, you know, when she had mentioned that this course was started, I was very, very interested in, in taking, you know, the, the training. So what do you think you'll um, take away? What, you know, what are some of the takeaways you think you'll... My biggest takeaway is that I want to create more opportunities for other tribal members and our youth to be active volunteers in their communities. So just being able to create, you know, a pathway to that. Diane Rave is financial aid administrator with the Ho-Chunk Nation in Black River Falls. She's one of the people who recently completed the Master Naturalist Training, the first to be hosted by the Ho-Chunk Nation. UW Extension coordinators say they hope this pilot is just the beginning of the Master Naturalist Program partnering with this and other tribes of Wisconsin. For Lake Effect, I'm Susan Bentz. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. Later in the show, we'll tell you about a holiday lights tradition in La Crosse. Most people would agree that it really brings the community together, not only the greater La Crosse area, but uh, we have uh, visitors from five or six different states uh, that make it a point to come to this each and every year. We'll help you plan a trip there in about 15 minutes. But first, we'll look at a new food memoir that explores how tribal traditions and Wisconsin culinary traditions can unite. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. A new food memoir shares tales from growing up on the Menominee Indian Reservation. It's a look at a time of economic transformation, when commodities from the federal government and processed foods were eaten right alongside game and plants hunted and foraged in the North Woods. It's also a celebration of Wisconsin culinary traditions, like beer, cheese, and fish fries. The author, Thomas Wieso, was an author, educator, and Menominee citizen. He passed away in July, before the book was published. With heart, humor, and a big appetite for nostalgia, Wieso wrote about the food that shaped his youth, from turtle soup to tamale pie. Wieso's wife, Denise Lowe, speaks with WUWM's Lena Tran, and begins by reading a passage from the book. One of my very favorite pieces is one that he found in Door County. 
in the introduction to the recipe for pan-fried smelt or other small fish, he tells this story. One fall, a couple of weeks after the tourist season ended, I was sitting at a tavern in Door County's Bailey's Harbor, just up the road from Green Bay, listening to local fishermen talk about smelt. They had been there a while as they emptied beer bottles in front of them and tested. The younger one said, the easiest way to catch smelt was to stretch pantyhose around a coat hanger, walk along the shore and scoop them up. His companion, a grizzled old timer, said his preferred method of fishing was to simply wade into the shallows, scoop the smelt out with his hands, and put them on the shore. He added that the easiest method for cleaning them was to bite off the heads. The entrails apparently came off with the heads. I presume he spit the heads out. But his younger friend chuckled, so I'm not sure of the biting the heads off method. The story may be apocryphal. So, I mean, I just love that, that uh, these are not Menominees, they're just cheese heads. And they're um, talking about using pantyhose around a coat hanger to net the local delicacy. Of course, the very pragmatic and primitive method of biting the heads off. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm not going to mess with any Wisconsin fishermen, that's for sure. I so enjoyed reading Tom's book. He was so much fun to get to know on the page. What would you like people to know about Tom? Um, I think people should know that he was an elder in the full sense of the word uh, for Native American and other contexts. As he grew into that role, he understood he needed to impart information to his children, nieces and nephews, grandchildren, and to preserve the heritage that he was so proud of, of the Menominee Reservation. Yeah. So with that said, can you talk about what you think he hoped to accomplish with this book? He had a real uh, sophisticated understanding of deep geography. He actually started out this book thinking about the trails that go through the Menominee Reservation and Wisconsin and connect it to the Great Lakes um, trading routes of previous centuries and today's highway system. And then as he started to dig into that, he realized everything he did connected to people and to memories and to um, the environment. And because people interact with the environment through eating, we eat the forest, we eat the sugar maple, we eat the animals of the forest. And, and certainly he did as a child as they did subsistence hunting. So he, he ended up doing this whole snowball of language stories that are important information for people to understand from a native perspective about the world, the environment, the ecology, the culture. It's, it's really hard to tease out one strand because he'll start to tell a story and then that leads to something else which does reflect back on the main plot line 
but it meanders. And, and so it's an organic experience to read the book. And so the book becomes like the forest itself. Yeah. I love how you can kind of follow his train of thought, but it isn't super linear. And so you really get the sense that you're moving through uh, his memories. I, I think that's absolutely true. He told me he woke up very early, four o'clock in the morning. He writes about his grandfather waking up at four in the morning and his last teaching job in the Kansas City area, he had to get up at four in the morning to get to an early class. So he had this system of getting uh, up at early in the morning and he would think about each chapter and, and he would conceive it in his head before he wrote it down. I think because he was raised in an oral tradition where people kind of line things up in their head of what they're going to speak rather than exploring on the page where it's going to go, I think that he kept that habit of an orality rather than a, a written process. Yeah. Could you describe how he grew up? Well, it was he had a very complicated childhood because he was not born in wedlock. And then his mother married a guy who had come back from World War II, a German-American who had uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome and was violent. So Tom kind of ping-ponged between that very toxic home and then the very loving and structured home on the reservation with his grandparents. Mostly what he writes about is the, the good parts. And he, he hints at some of the difficulties. He was a very strong-willed person by nature. That got him into trouble. And he was kicked out of high school by the age of 16. But in Wisconsin, you had to keep children in school until 18, so they sent him to college. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So at 16, he was walking around Stevens Point. So he, he really struggled with demons and did a lot of healing through his life. And he did have that strand of family support that helped him and that's the part of him I love that was easiest to love and you know he came to Haskell Indian Nations University when I was a professor there I ran across something he'd written it was just great and I'm going wow you know who is this guy is that how you met yes so I gave him a second look, uh, you know, like he'd, he'd walked into class like, well, I'm God's gift to women. Um, here I am. And I'm going, <laughs> oh, right, here we go. Another one of these fellas like that, you know, sit down and be quiet, you know, but he never was quiet. Yeah. At the same time, he's growing up amidst a lot of like economic change on the reservation, it seems. Later, he talks about like grocery stores and there's federal investment and like tribal housing. His mother's and grandparents were kind of seduced by fast foods. And when these first these things first came into use, uh, we didn't look at the preservatives. It was like, oh, gosh, I don't have to spend 
an hour peeling potatoes. Imagine them. I can just dump out a, an envelope and mix water in and have mashed potatoes. And so he really explains how the times in the mainstream society affected him personally and the uh, reservation in general. And, and one of the things I also loved about Thomas, as he started into writing this, he understood he wasn't just writing for Menominees. He's writing for all people of Wisconsin, all people of the 21st century, uh, and informing them of these are changes that happened at the grassroots in, in the texture of day-to-day life. This is WUWM's Lena Tran. I'm speaking with Denise Lowe. She is a poet and writer, and we're talking about her late husband, Thomas Wiseau's new memoir. It's called Survival Food, and it includes tales and recipes of his formative years growing up on the Menominee Reservation in northern Wisconsin. There's a lot of observations about the difference between, like, white and Indian amenities, like cars or the ability or the inability, rather, of white cars to traverse the reservation's muddy roads. Do you think that his observing those things and those differences, was it always very obvious to him from a very young age? Or do you think that there was kind of a bitterness that came when he got well, older? Well, no, I think it was, you know, there. there's a story when he was living as a you know, three or four-year-old kid that they could hear by the motor coming, what, whether it's a res ride or a white person's car coming down the road. And, and then the radio stations and the difference between the Scandinavian neighbors and the uh, German neighbors and the Polish neighbors. You know, it's kind of mixed in there. Like it's also with the Ojibwe neighbors. They had... Uh, some stray Dakotas coming through um, and relatives. So it wasn't in a hierarchy, but it was uh, a difference. And I will say that, that there were times when Tom was, you know, knew that he was disadvantaged by being a min- uh, an ethnic minority. You know, one of the stories he told me once that is just so insidious and heartbreaking is that he and his cousin were taking algebra in the local middle school, and they had the highest grades. But at the end of the semester, they both got C's because Indigenous people could not get higher grades than white kids. Yeah. And it's like you said, he mostly writes about the good parts, but every now and then he kind of... Well, throw out a line about like, oh, this is something that I was dealing with or like I had to drive slow in Wisconsin. Otherwise, I was going to get pulled over yeah, by the yeah, cops. Yeah. yeah, he he really wants to he wanted to move beyond a bitter outlook in life and to embrace the positive things as he got older and mellowed. And as you become an elder, you you seek to harmonize and, and in the foods he presents, he doesn't just stick to only indigenous foods or Menominee foods. He tries to embrace the diner foods that he loved also and to accept that there was an intermixture that uh, had been there. He tells one story uh, that's set in Saskatchewan in the 17th century where 
at a gathering of tribal nations where they realize that there's already intermixture and they need to embrace that. Tom, thanks you and the acknowledgements. I'm curious what working together on this book looked like and what was your relationship kind of like when you would edit things together? You know, I, I'm the detail person, dotting eyes and, you know, making sure infinitives weren't split. And Tom kept saying, you know, Denise, this is really good. Uh-huh. <laughs> I said, of course it is, dear. Um, they said, no, yeah. this is really good. I, I said, I know, I know it is. So there were just a few places where I, I would say, well, this section needs to go over here because it relates to that topic. But mostly it was just a pleasure to read it and to just tweak you know, to polish it. You know, Lord knows I couldn't come up with any of what he wrote about mezcal worms, you know, that's just not part of my life experience. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Is there anything I didn't ask that you would like to mention? You know, Tom's my hero. You know, I think he overcame a lot. He tried to find the best in everything that he could at the end of his life and and then to share it we we are all blessed to be in this world and to thank the generations before us and to always be thinking of the generations that will follow us denise lowe is a writer and former kansas poet laureate and has indigenous delaware heritage her late husband is Thomas Wieso, the author of the new book, Survival Food. We'll help you plan a trip to lacrosse rotary lights next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. There's a lot of traveling that happens around the holidays, but you could also plan a trip just for fun this holiday season. In this month's Wandering Wisconsin, Lake Effect's Becky Mortensen helps you plan a trip to La Crosse, where there's a massive holiday lights display. But that's not the only way to celebrate the holidays in the La Crosse area. To learn more, Becky speaks with Ann Sayers with Travel Wisconsin and Pat Stevens with the Lacrosse Rotary Lights. The Lacrosse Rotary Lights is one of the largest and most elaborate holiday lights displays in the state. So first, Pat, can you just describe what people will see on a visit to the lights this holiday season? Absolutely. We're in Riverside Park in Lacrosse, Wisconsin. It is uh, right along the uh, Mississippi River, which adds a little bit to the to the beauty of it on here. We have millions of lights. We have 75 animated displays. We have a live nativity scene. Uh, we have reindeer. We have nightly entertainment. We throw in some free s'mores for people that are visiting and so on. Even have two fire-breathing dragons. The park is designed so you can either walk through the park if you prefer or drive around the park uh, if you're... Uh, if you want to do that and so on. But uh, we can throw in when Mother Nature cooperates. We've got a nice ice skating rink down there, uh, which is free to use, as well as free skates that we provide for the people. And uh, we also, if you want to be a little more adventurous, have helicopter rides over the display, uh, which has become very popular over the years. 
Yeah, I saw that with the helicopter rides. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that's like? Uh, I've done it twice, and it's a great way to see the light display in a little different format, uh, going up over the river and over the park and so on. Uh, people really do enjoy that. I know we've had some uh, some engagements that have taken place while in flight, so it makes it kind of nice as well. Okay, so there's over 3 million lights. I can only imagine the amount of work that goes into putting this together. Can you share a bit about how the display is set up? For sure. We're, uh, we're fortunate to have uh, an ample number of volunteers. We have solicit help from nonprofit organizations every year uh, to help us with the uh, people power that's needed to put it up and take it down and so on. Uh, this year, we have 103 nonprofit organizations that are volunteering their time uh, to put it all together. And when you add it all up, it's a little over 3,000 volunteers. We have no payroll. It's all a volunteer effort from the community. And what about the the design and how you decide to put, you know, like a nutcracker over here, or a snowflake over there? How does that work? Well, we have a, a committee, of course. Every organization has to have a committee. And they sit down and map out the park and decide uh, what colors are going to go where, where certain displays are going to be there to get uh, make sure they get the greatest exposure and so on. It really is a, a great group of volunteers, and they work on it all year long. So coming to see the Rotary Lights is free. Anybody can come and walk around or drive around, but there is a charitable mission. What should people know about that? The actual mission of Rotary Lights is to feed the hungry. And uh, uh, we ask people, if you enjoy your time uh, at the display, uh, to consider either a cash contribution uh, or to give some non-perishable food items uh, or both. And uh, it's grown extensively over the years now. Uh, the very first year of Rotary Lights, we collected 13,000 food items and gave it all to the Salvation Army. Uh, last year, we collected 341,000 food items and stocked 14 area food pantries. So it really has become a major player in feeding the less fortunate, especially that time of the year. Wow. And next week, there will be an all abilities night at the Rotary Lights. What can you tell me about that? Well, we worked with the uh, uh, a group in town uh, that deals a lot with uh, those that have autism, and uh, they kept telling us that they would like to to bring their their friends and family members down to it. But we had to change a few things to accommodate them. So we do have an all abilities night. Uh, uh, we turn down all the flashing lights at that time, uh, turn down the music, and do a few other things that makes it very accommodating uh, for those that have that. So it works out pretty well, and the, the parents and others are very appreciative of it. And Anne, are there any other holiday events outside of the Rotary Lights happening in the lacrosse area that people could check out this time of year? Yes. So you're going to find a fantastic holiday experience in Sparta. That's about 30 minutes outside of lacrosse. It's on the way to or from the Milwaukee area. And Sparta hosts four weekends of festivities known as the Sparta Chris Kindle Market. This is one of Wisconsin's best outdoor Christmas markets. It replicates the traditional German style markets full of local artisans. You can shop for handmade gifts. There's 27 different huts. There's also authentic German flavors like Luwein. That's the traditional mulled wine, Bavarian pretzels. Um, and the Sparta Chris Kindle Market is open Fridays and Saturdays for four weeks. That begins November 24th. 
And if you're looking for a tree still, which I will be here shortly, you can take a scenic detour through the Driftless area to Second Nature at Reeds Creek. It's a plant nursery near Reedstown. It has pre-cut Christmas trees, reeds, and a gift shop open until December 3rd. But they're also putting on special events and workshops over this time. And one of the most unexpected selections is a living Christmas tree. So they're small living evergreens with their roots wrapped and intact. So you can decorate it, display it, enjoy the tree inside for the season, but then care for it over the winter, plant it in the spring, and kind of keep those memories of the season around for decades. So one thing people are doing a lot of this time of year is shopping. So if people are making a trip to the lacrosse area, where are some good places they could shop local? They have a lot of options, actually. And I love shopping locally during the holiday season. It's just a good way to support small businesses and have some fun while you're doing it. And in Lacrosse, one place I definitely suggest checking out is Drift Mercantile. It's right there in the heart of the city's historic downtown. It's very walkable from the rotary light display. And Drift Mercantile stocks all sorts of locally made and inspired gift options. So you're going to find apparel that's designed and screen printed in-house. They have Wisconsin-made products like candles, artwork, and crafts, and so much more. I actually do a lot of shopping there whenever I'm in town because it just has something for the people you don't know what to get. So that's a great stop. If you have an antiquer in your life and you're hoping to surprise them for the holidays, maybe stop into the Antique Center of La Crosse. It's 20,000 square feet. It's one of the largest antique centers in all of Wisconsin. But you can wander there through three floors. You can browse 75 booths for goods like collectibles, vintage clothing, books, lamps. I mean, just anything anything you can think of, they're going to have it. Another one you can stop into is Larson's General. They stock curated collections of bulk baby and home goods, as well as Driftless Skincare. That's their in-house skin and beauty brand. And I love that they're really focused on low waste and reusable solutions to packaging. So that just feels really good to support. And after the lights and the shopping and picking out a tree, if people want to sit down and have a meal, what would you recommend? Okay, well, one you have to look at is Love Child Restaurant, especially if you're looking for maybe a romantic dinner. This restaurant specializes in uncomplicated, fine dining food. They prepare seasonally inspired starters, pastas, and entrees are full of really intriguing flavors. They made a huge splash when they opened in 2017. The chef and co-owner, Jay Sparks, he earned a semi-finalist nod from the James Beard Foundation for Best Chef in the Midwest. So it's Elegant atmosphere kind of complements Love Child's fine food. The interior is this mix of brick and timber and then shimmering velvet and soft lighting. It actually landed on food and wines list for most romantic restaurant in every state. So that's pretty cool. You could also head over to Uno Venti Pizzeria and warm up with their delicious homemade pizza. Uno Venti pays respect to the traditions of Italian pizza making by using crushed San Marzano tomatoes, of course, olive oil and sea salt. That's the base for their red sauce. And then they fire the pizzas in their Italian stone dome oven. And they're topped with Wisconsin cheese and ingredients. You can go the traditional route. I usually do the margarita, but you can also mix things up with a spicy Hawaiian, wild mushroom, and then they also have weekly specialty pizzas. Pat, this is the 29th year of the lacrosse rotary lights display. What would you say keeps this going every year? Well, I think most people would agree that it really brings the community together, not only the greater lacrosse area, but uh, we have uh, visitors from five or six different states uh, that make it a point to come to this each and every year. And this being the 29th year, we're actually into the third generation now. So it's not unusual to uh, find some young families that are down there uh, where the parents themselves uh, grew up with the project and are now bringing their kids to enjoy it as well. 
It really is with 3,000 people involved with putting it together. It really is a, a total community activity. Well, Pat and Anne, thank you so much for joining me for Wandering Wisconsin. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Thank you. That was Lake Effect's Becky Mortensen speaking with Pat Stevens, the president of the Lacrosse Rotary Lights. Ann Sayers is the tourism secretary for Travel Wisconsin. The Rotary Lights opens this Friday and runs through December 31st. Turkey mashed potatoes stuffing. These are all Thanksgiving staples. But another thing that many of us Midwesterners are likely to have at the table tomorrow is a casserole. Milwaukee Magazine's dining critic Ann Christensen talks about what makes this comfort food so special. Casserole is, you know, it's it's such an interesting thing for me because I grew up eating casseroles and um, my mom made them. They were something that I think in the 1970s and 80s were just really, really big. You know, more convenience foods became really popular and this idea of getting all your food groups into the same dish. You've got your starch, you've got your protein, you've got your vegetable, maybe, and then that could be peas or corn, something like that. But I think um, what's interesting is that people don't realize there is a, you know, sort of a history to that. The word casserole has some French origin, casa, which means pan, and that's in the Provençal dialect. And when you think of different casseroles or different dishes from, from various countries, you might not even necessarily think of them as casseroles. Like for instance, in Spain, they have paella, which is a seafood and rice dish, but it really is kind of a casserole because anything sort of cooked in the same vessel all together is really a casserole. Um, so I found that to be really fascinating. You know, growing up on what I thought was an American dish is really more than that. It has a lot of history and it is it has an equivalent in so many different um, countries. And um, I also think that the casserole is kind of coming back. Not that it's gone anywhere. It's like one of those things that home cooks kind of fall back on. I mean, some people might think of lasagna as a casserole. It kind of is. But I think especially as things get more tense and more uncertain in the world, we you know, we turn to these things. Food is very much a comfort. And I think, I think we're going to eat, I think we're eating more casseroles, Audrey. I really think so. So I just think it's interesting that there is such a history to them and they've sort of led us through or taken us through so many different things in our history. Ann Christensen is the dining critic for Milwaukee Magazine. She wrote an article called Food for the Soul in 2021, which is when she joined Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. Audrey Nowakowski, Sam Woods, and Excret Nunez join me in producing Lake Effect each week with help from Robert Larry. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. This week, we also heard from Mayan Silver, Susan Bentz, and Lena Tran from the WUWM News Team. Jason Reevy is our studio engineer. Michelle Maternowski is our digital manager. Valeria Navarro-Viegas is our digital editor. Trevor Shep wrote our theme music. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts. 
to listen to all of our shows on demand. Lake Effect is off tomorrow for the holiday, but at noon you'll hear a special all about best practices when cooking traditional holiday dishes. That's tomorrow at noon, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.